spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 131st Annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, the weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm Joe, my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. Enjoying a nice, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a uh, rainy Minnesota day in a doom and gloom season we are in right now. I don't know if I've seen the sun in a few days. How about oh, Arizona? How's that going? That's unfortunate. We actually had some pretty cold days for the past uh, past few days, but it got up to about 95 today and sunny. So okay. pretty happy about that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's it's, you know, hovering around 40 to 50 here. Uh, we all know what's once Halloween's passed. It's just a waiting game for winter to show up. Waiting for the snow. Yeah, it's not pleasant, but it's something that we have to deal with every single goddamn year. All right, Phil. Well, you wanted to talk about a uh, blockbuster hit that has just came out. Do you want to? Do you want to give us a little spoiler-free review on that bad boy? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I've got a pretty boring life, but I did actually go catch that new movie Dune uh, in theaters this past weekend. I've got to say, it is pretty fucking long. So that Re- was. I haven't been to a movie quite that long in a while. So. How long are we talking here? I think it might have been, including all the previews and everything, coming up on two hours, 45 minutes. So the actual movie felt like it was about two hours and 30 minutes almost. Not exactly sure, but quite a long time. Wow. Also, though, the worst part about it was the drink that they gave me, they actually gave me the cardboard straws, which are new since the last time I've been there. And pretty much these straws, I had to go get a second one because the straw completely disintegrated about halfway through <laughs> the movie. So I was not pleased with that. So All right. Yeah, I, I've always thought about this. Obviously, we need to figure out a way how to get uh, away from plastics, right? That's my opinion. Um, yes. There has to be something else besides either plastic or cardboard. Like, is there... Is there like no other substance that can hold up slightly when it gets wet? Here's my thing. So we make the cup out of that cardboard that has that coating on it so that it doesn't disintegrate with your drink inside. You know, with your drink inside of it, it won't completely disintegrate. Why can't we just make the straws out of that? Why do the straws have to be made out of the same cardboard that cardboard boxes are made out of? I think it's that. Yeah, I, I think it's a wax coating. Yeah, exactly. If we just make the cardboard straws out of that kind of, you know, same cardboard, you could even cut up cardboard cups and make a straw out of that. And it wouldn't leave that weird taste with the drink or disintegrate into your drink. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So now we're off our soapbox. Would you recommend people watch this? 
No, I wouldn't. Okay. All right. It was on HBO Max or whatever. I My subscription is going to be canceled in two days, so I don't mm. think I'm going to make it in time to watch it. Not, I didn't have that much interest. I, I don't think I'd ever seen the original. Had you seen the original? I've seen parts of the original. I did not enjoy it. Um, it was This movie was actually better than the original. It's just basically I was uh, watching some reviews of it on some other podcasts that I listened to. And they were saying that not only was it that long, but it was also only part of the first like book or whatnot. Yikes. They had actually like cut it in half. So that two hours and whatever minutes it was, was only part of that first movie. So Holy shit. Well, I yeah. so I I was pumped up to watch Halloween Kills. I uh, you know obviously we're in Halloween season here. Um, yes. Did you? I suppose you probably hadn't watched that yet. I'm going to this weekend. I believe it's on Peacock. Yes, that's where Before I watched you. it. That's where yeah, I watched I'm gonna, it. I'm gonna watch it there. Okay, so. I'm gonna give my spoiler review. I think it's one of those movies. We're either going to have people who love it or hate it. Okay. It's one of those divides. I did. I actually kind of liked it. Maybe not as much as the uh, 2018 one, but I did enjoy it. And I, I don't know. I think you might enjoy it as well. Um, when you were talking about the movie that actually reminded me, there is a movie called Antlers about a Wendigo that is coming out, I think, this Friday, tomorrow. I was like, God, maybe I should go see that because I haven't been to a movie theater in a few months here. I actually, it hasn't been that long. I forgot you and I went. Yeah, we. Uh, what God? What movie? We went to Shang Chi. Shang. Yeah, yes, Shang-Chi. that was a great movie, actually. But um, I haven't heard of that movie. It sounds pretty good. The new Halloween movie. I actually really enjoyed when I was a kid the Halloween movies and some of the like Chucky leprechaun some of the other horror movies i'm not that big into horror movies anymore like you know but yeah i mean a good a good halloween movie would be nice to see i know they have the the actress from the first movie back so i think if you remember the original halloween it's a very good they bring back a lot of the characters from from that particular film so it's good in that fashion um the last thing i was gonna say before we get going here the I don't know who thought this was a good idea, but they uh, did you see they have a child's play TV show now? Yes, I did see that that was coming out. I believe it's on one of the streaming channels or streaming networks, whatever. Why? Unless Chucky's swearing and is very violent, then what is the point? And also, like Chucky's one of those movies where you have to like watch him get captured or killed or resurrected, whatnot, in one sitting. They're going to have him just murdering people all these episodes and just not get caught or there's, I mean, to have it be like a long, you know, platform type situation, it's not very good for a Chucky movie. A Chucky movie almost has to be condensed into like a 90 minute kind of medium, dude, not really a series. So. Dude, Chucky swearing and being very offensive is kind of like what makes Chucky awesome, if you ask me, like him calling yeah. everybody a bitch and you little fucker and stuff like that. Like that's just Chucky. That's quintessential Chucky there. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a toy doll with the spirit of like a degenerate serial killer inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole thing behind it. (laughs) But anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, I guess 
dolls. Degen- yeah, degenerate, yeah. Ser- degenerate serial killer, actually. <laughs> there you go. Take over, Phil. All right. These days, entertainment from the doldrums of everyday life is not all that hard to come by, whether it be movies, games, TV series, or even podcasts. There is more than enough to satiate all of society's need for distraction. Though, for the most part, people of the distant past were not quite so lucky, as long before digital streaming and even cable television, decent family entertainment was hard to come by, though this sustained boredom could be interrupted when the traveling circus came to your town and all of the excitement that it brought with it. Oh yeah, we all love the the circus. I think I only went to the one in our hometown one time, and uh, I didn't really realize the circus is terrible for all those animals. <laughs> yes, that they <laughs> let all the kids ride. Yeah, they do look like some of the most depressed creatures on earth when yeah. you see them up close. Especially, they had I believe they had a couple of elephants there, and. You know how, like, when you can look at an animal's face and just see depression? Yeah. You very much so saw depression in those elephants' eyes. It was, and also it wasn't like a big-time circus either. It was a very kind of a white trashy circus that they brought to our town. without a doubt. Did that thing come every year? Because I didn't feel like it came every year. No, I only remember it once ever coming to our town. Then so, maybe that's the only time I ever went. I believe that was the only time. I think I remember, I'm not sure what year it was, but I believe I remember seeing you there. I went with my family, but I do remember seeing you and your family there too. So, I think I was a son of a bitch who rode that depressed elephant, sadly. <laughs> but uh, maybe he, maybe that elephant went crazy and just killed all the performers and then escaped. Yeah, hopefully. Good for it. <laughs> now, on July 6th, 1944, the circus, presented by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey's Circus, had come to the town of Hartford, Connecticut, setting up their famed big top inside of town on an open field. And they had actually shown up later than they had planned, which in, I guess, the what I have read for the circus, their missing a performance is considered bad luck. And they actually did miss their first scheduled event. Though over 7,000 people would attend the next day at a matinee, piling into the 500-foot-long Big Top for this much-anticipated show. 500-foot-long does not seem that big to haul that many Connecticut people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I was kind of looking up some of the, the Barnum and Bailey's Big Tops, like how big they were, and apparently... Like for this, um, for this time, 1944, this is kind of a benchmark in the circus. You'll find out why. The capacity of this big top was 9,000 people. God so. damn. Okay. Uh, so I guess I would hold them all. The Did they say what made them late or they were just being carnies? Well, I mean, you know, carny behavior. They're probably just showing up late all the time. But apparently they were just kind of late coming into town. Gotcha. Okay. I guess 1944, they ain't got the greatest transportation ever. Yeah. It's, I mean, considering like their schedule, it's amazing that they were able to tear down their last show, drive to the next town, set it all up within like two days. 
it's it's pretty amazing that they were able to like keep this up for how much if you if you actually look at like the grounds and how much they had to set up even just the big top itself was absolutely huge it's it's almost like they constructed a building that day just for a show so quite impressive yeah and i mean i will have pictures up of the big top on the instagram account so you'll kind of see like the inside of it it was a pretty huge like area so like you could hold you could you could easily play a game not even of football you could play a game of soccer inside of that area it's very big then definitely about 25 minutes into the show just after the Lion Tamer's performance, and just before the Flying Walindas took their positions to perform their world-famous trapeze act, a small fire had actually started on some grass between the men's bathroom and the big top. Now, this fire would quickly spread to the southwest canvas wall of the tent. It's believed at the time that it may have been started by a careless tossing of a cigarette. Now, The fire would quickly rage out of control when it met the tent's canvas, which had actually been waterproofed with a treatment of 1,800 pounds of paraffin wax and cut with 6,000 gallons of gasoline. The fire would grow to a height of over 100 feet, which of course would terrify the crowds. Okay, how do you waterproof it? Mixing, I don't know what paraffin is exactly, but gasoline, yeah, we all know... Uh, that's will <laughs> that will set some shit on fire. Obviously, of course, it's an asshole who threw his cigarette out there. Uh, I I assumed they just allowed you to smoke inside of the tent, so I guess they're lucky that it was outside for at least now. Yeah. So the rumor was that it was a tossed cigarette that started this fire. That was an early on rumor of how it all started. So the 1800 pounds of paraffin wax, it basically just kept the water from destroying the canvas, I'm guessing. And that wax, they, so it wasn't so thick. They cut it with gasoline. I've also seen that in an article, it may not have been cut with gasoline. It may have been cut with kerosene, but I mean, they're both highly flammable substances. Yeah. They might as well have just put like, Rows and rows of TNT sticks to try to make a waterproof at that point. Yeah, I mean, if we were talking about another flammable fluid, we would say they might as well have just thrown gasoline on the tent. But literally, <laughs> that's what they did. So, Okay, well, uh, I guess in hindsight, maybe not the best idea. No, definitely not. <laughs> so as the performers began to notice that the tent was becoming engulfed in flames, One of them actually yelled out that the tent was on fire. Uh, This actually made the leader of the circus's band, Merrill Evans, alert the band and begin a rendition of The Stars and Stripes Forever, which was actually a signal to the rest of the performers and circus crew that something was terribly wrong or just plain not going to plan with the circus. Now, ringmaster Fred Branda would urge the audience not to panic and to leave in an orderly fashion. However, the power had actually failed, and he could not be heard at all. Branda and the ushers were unsuccessful, trying to really just maintain order and keep the panicked crowd from trampling each other. Okay, you know the second someone says do not panic in a large crowded area, I'm pretty sure they panic immediately, even though they couldn't hear them. Interesting choice of songs there that they play that song to mean that something's 
bad's happening. Yeah, I'm guessing that that's a song that they play that people won't really notice is out of place, but the crew and the performers would notice that that song's out of place. Because mm-hmm. you kind of have that the circus music in your head from all of the, you know, the media and everything, like movies and if you've been to a circus. You have that music in your head. They pretty much play the Star Spangled Banner right away at the beginning of the show, and then they play that circus music throughout the rest of it. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, uh, so far in the story, the sounds terrifying. Yes. Oh, and it becomes uh, absolutely fucking terrifying when you start Ooh. to hear the rest of it. Okay. Now, hundreds of patrons uh, began mobbing the exits, trying to escape from the big top. However, most of them were blocked. Now, this was due to the crew having placed animal crates next to the exits to prevent the escape of any animals. This would cause mass confusion as spectators whom had rushed to the exits of the tents, all while the large chunks of burning canvases plummeted down on top of the herds of fleeing humanity. Now, attempting to escape by any means possible, many of the patrons would like try doing anything, including ripping away at the sidewalls of the now burning canvas. Uh, this was all while the flames grew rapidly all around them and the tent filled with smoke. Damn, okay, yeah. So, basically, when the fire hit the big top, the canvas, it essentially ignited the whole thing almost, like, simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, the flames grew up the southwest wall and then just kind of went all around the big top. Okay, I uh, mean... The dome structure and then all along the walls, so... Yeah, that's pretty scary. You're sitting inside of that and they're just like flaming pieces of the uh, canvas coming down probably ooh that looks that'd be scary and all the smoke yeah yeah you're just immediately surrounded by fire ooh so even with the attempts to subdue the flames by the crew of the circus uh, and as you can see in the picture below there's a quite famous picture of a clown carrying water uh his clothes are very singed from like trying to fight the fire uh, many of the crew were carrying water back and forth, trying to put out the flames. Yeah, I, I can uh, I can see him there. He He's wearing very baggy pants. Yes, yep, he's wearing kind of what you would think a 1940s clown would wear. <laughs> now, even with these attempts to subdue the flames, the fire engulfed the big top in less than 10 minutes. They're burning through the poles and the ropes, which were holding the tent up. This would cause the remnants of the flaming big top to crash down on whoever may have been left inside the now flattened burning tent. Oof, that's brutal. That's Definitely. uh, yeah, that's horrible. It's like having a flaming blanket thrown on top of you. Yes, I mean there are. Uh, I'll kind of get into the acts of heroics from inside the tents of you know people doing anything they could to save each other's wives, save other people's wives. But I mean the panic. Just, I mean, the the fire and the smoke alone are terrifying. But when you have a, a crowd of 7,000 people, including the crew and the performers trying to get out, that would be insane. Yeah. Yeah, I hope this circus has a uh, a, a Robin-type character here. You know, because he was, he was created in a certain... No, his family was in the circus, right? Yeah, his family was killed during the circus. They were trying to, I don't know if they were trying to help people escape the the people attacking the circus or uh, if they were trying to fight them. But yeah, his family was killed. Mm. 
Now, by the time that the fire rescue officials came to the scene, they were able to actually put out the blaze, but over 700 people had been injured already. Uh, this was also with 167 who had passed on, most of which had died from smoke inhalation, with others either passing away from being trampled by the escaping crowd, falling from the top of the bleachers trying to escape the flames, or from being crushed by the falling of the canvas and eventually the big top on top of them. God damn. Or I mean, I guess it's less dead than I was expecting, but obviously that's a shit ton of people. Yeah, another scary part from inside the tent, uh, I heard one description saying that paraffin wax was actually falling down from the, the roof of the tent and kind of acting like napalm like sticking to people as it was burning. Damn. They yeah. got, so basically it was like what the uh, Dothraki guy did to Khaleesi's brother, pouring that. Oh, uh, <laughs> with the liquid, with the liquid gold on yeah. top of his head. That's what it yeah. reminded me of. Oof, what a, what a horrible way to go down. Like literally if, uh, isn't this what happens if you get kerosene, like lit kerosene on you, it like sticks to you. Yeah, well, I mean, napalm is probably the best example. There's a pretty famous picture of a, I don't know if it's Cambodia or Vietnamese girl, but she's basically covered in napalm running down the road on fire. Um, yeah, it's pretty grisly pictures. But, I mean, it. yeah, it, it sticks to you and it's burning your skin while it's just kind of hanging on you. Yeah, Ooh, that's rough. Now, after the tragedy, many stories of heroism emerged from that day, including adults picking up stranded children and carrying them out of the flaming tent. Also about one of the performers running towards the stage to rescue Frida Prushnik. Uh, Frida was the armless and legless woman of the circus. Uh, he rushed to her safety as she had no means of escaping on her own. Oh, okay. Well, that... Uh... That guy or girl was uh, very thoughtful. Um, again, I don't mean to sound this way, but you, when you watch shows on TV and you have like the, I don't want to say freaks, but that's what they would call them back then. Uh, yes. They're all from Russia. What is going on with that? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Um, Eastern European, it seems like. Yeah. A lot of, uh, you see a lot of, a lot of the stories of, some of them come from like Russia, yeah, Eastern Europe. Um, a lot of the circus performers too. They always talked about a lot of them being like from Czechoslovakia, hmm. or yeah. Very interesting. Well, I'm glad Frida escaped the tent, or someone was uh, daring enough to help her because obviously, like you said, she could not. Sure, she was not able to do that on her own. Yeah. Also, another uh, pretty famous story was the famous trapeze group, the Great Wallindas who were actually like performing while the fire began to engulf the big top would actually save hundreds of lives on that day as they quickly began cutting holes in the side of the tent walls and also would start to shove animal cages to the side. This would allow circus patrons the opportunity to escape the tent. Okay. I very admirable of those uh, folks there. I suppose they would be probably the most nimble people in that tent that day. Yeah, and they would also probably have been one of the first people to have seen uh, that the fire was coming up the sides. When you're a patron of the circus, you don't really, if you're in the audience, you don't really know what's going on. 
But if, if the circus is kind of your home, if it's your job, and all of a sudden you see the flames growing, you kind of know like where the exits are, and you can see that you know there's shit blocking it. We have to move it. So, I mean, right. great on them for not just escaping themselves. Right, just like swinging their rope and then doing a somersault out of the tent or something. <laughs> out of one of the tent flaps? Yeah. yeah. They're just like throwing their whole family out of the door. <laughs> They're just swinging back and forth, tossing themselves out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, there are some claims that the casualties were even higher than what was reported, with many of the injured actually leaving the city and seeking medical treatment in their own hometowns. This was because a lot of the tickets were either given away or sold in the smaller towns in the region. Now, also, according to one of the articles that I read, many of the tickets were actually given away to transients and drifters and were supposedly not counted among the injured or deceased in the total account of the casualties because no one ever claimed them. And basically, this was because it was a matinee show. Uh, a lot of the men were at work. You have to remember this was 1944. This was during the pinnacle of American production for the war effort. So a right. lot of the guys were at work. And uh, you know, a lot of the women were at work too. But the crowd was mostly full of women, children, and older people. Gotcha. Okay. So they so they're getting the death count kind of based off backtracking from ticket sales. Is that how I'm reading that right? Well, of the reported missing. Okay. Okay. I suppose that makes it maybe not the most effective. Well, I suppose for this time, maybe that is the most effective way to do that. Yeah. I do have a list that I put it in the the show notes, uh, the website for it. It's right there. Um Probably not going to go through any of the names. I just, if you look at it, you notice that there are so many names of people with the same last names. Uh, this, and it also shows their age too. A lot of the people who died were in part of the same family. There was one family's name where it looked like it was the grandma, the grandpa, the daughter, and one of the granddaughters, just because of how the ages kind of staggered perfectly. The Got grandparents it. looked like they were in their 80s. The, the grandpa and grandma were both 81. So it's one of those situations where it looked like it took out like a pretty large portion of this family. Gotcha. Okay. I You'd think like in that particular scenario, some of their family members would have came and said like, hey, they're missing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. With the, a lot of the people on the list were actually... Um, their family members had come to try to find them and, gotcha. you know, reported them missing. So that's how a lot of these names came about. There was also after the fire, they were picking through the remains, trying to find, you know, if they could find any, any people, you know, identify. Also, it was a lot harder back then too, because there wasn't a database full of people like there is now. There wasn't DNA evidence, uh, all of that stuff. Right. So. That's a very valid point. Definitely. You're actually hoping more to find um, like stuff on their person, like yeah. personal effects, some sort of ID they're carrying with them, something like that. Some sort of I identifying item or something you mean? Yeah, like a ring, a necklace, that kind of stuff, too. Um, a lot of people didn't really have tattoos back then, so that also wouldn't been, you know, easily defined like something what? something like now everyone has identifiable tattoos pretty much, you know. Yeah, you remember back then, the only people who had them were like STD-ridden sailors, apparently. Yeah, sailors or bikers or 
people who everyone thought were criminals, pretty much. <laughs> After the site had been picked through and all the charred remains had been collected, the biggest question for the survivors and the families of the victims was, of course, how and why did this happen? Also, one of the biggest questions, probably maybe even the most important question was, who caused this disaster? And whom is at fault for all of the death and destruction that occurred on that very hot day in okay. Connecticut? Okay, yes, this is a uh, this is a question even I would like to know. Is there any chance it was Barry Satira, or is, are we ruling him out? It possibly could be. You never can rule out Barry Satiro. Also, I believe that Jeff Bezos, um, with you know his large mental capacity, could have traveled back on just his brainwaves alone and caused this fire. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I don't think Bezos would smoke because um, it's too expensive for him. And But there is the picture of Obama smoking. That's kind of a famous picture. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Obama smoked for quite a while. Uh, he might have claimed that he quit during the uh, his presidential time, but it's pretty hard to just kind of quit cold turkey. So. Yeah, if you're if you're a long time smoker, you never truly quit. Yeah, either you switch to vaping or you just miss it every day of your fucking life. Yeah, or you just smoke like if somebody has one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I mentioned before. One of the first and most popular excuses early on was that a man had flung a lit cigarette carelessly down uh, near the men's toilet in some dried out grass next to the big top. Uh, now, there were actually, you know, some people who were blamed. Involuntary manslaughter charges would be filed against five officials and employees who had been working for the circus and were in connection to the tragedy. Now, four of these men would eventually be found guilty, though they would all be pardoned shortly after. The circus would pay $5 million total in restitutions to the victims and the victims' families. For the 40s, that's a pretty banging number. That's quite a bit. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty decent number. I don't, I didn't do like the calculation for how much it would be, but you got to think back then... If you had $5 million, you were you know, one of the most wealthy men in the country, probably. So Yeah. I suppose it's also split up between whatever, how many thousand people as well. Yes, this is split up between hundreds of people. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, have you ever gotten one of those things where they're having like a class action payout? Yes. Like, I think Wells Fargo or something did it. And it's it'll be to like a million people and you get like 20 cents. Yeah. The only people who actually got paid were the lawyers. Yeah, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I actually did get something in the mail about the, the Wells Fargo thing. So they didn't actually screw me over. They tried to screw me over a couple of times. But <laughs> now the Ringling Brothers Circus would push forth the theory that the fire was set intentionally and... On May 17th, 1950, a 21-year-old man by the name of Robert Siege was captured on a farm in East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, he was actually extradited to Centerville, Ohio, where he was under suspicion of an unrelated separate arson. Now, while he was being interrogated for this arson, Siege would actually confess not only to the suspected crimes of the arson, but also to four acts of murder and 25 to 30 separate arsons. This would include the Hartford Circus Fire. 
Interesting. Okay, so we... You're saying we have Mr. Robert Siege uh, is, a, in fact, a serial killer. Well, yeah. So kind of his uh, in his Murderpedia description, it does call him an arsonist slash suspected serial killer. Okay. So Did it, did it say, I don't know if you're going to go into it, the murders are from his arsons? Well, no. So he does obviously have, you know, if he did allegedly, possibly, set those fires for at the Hartford Circus, then those would be, you know, 167 murders that he committed just from the fire. But all of the other murders were not, they were all violent. They were not, gotcha. you know, they were, they were, they were not arson. They were not, uh, I don't know exactly if you would call that as a result of arson, but no, they were all like his first murder. I'm going to mention uh, in a bit, but it was okay. by, you know, bashing someone's head in with a rock. Okay. So. All right. That's all I was curious about. While investigating the claims by Robert Siege, Ohio Deputy Fire Investigator R. Russell Smith would actually go to Robert's childhood home in Portland, Maine, and do a background check on all of his confessed crimes. Uh, he would discover that there had been, like I mentioned, the 25 to 30 fires. This was all pretty much in the area around Siege's home the prior to and after the 1944 fire. Siege, on top of admitting to the main circus fire, also admitting to setting two smaller fires at that same circus in the days leading up to the big fire. Uh, this information hadn't actually been made public, so he kind of knew this even though it wasn't in any of the papers, which if you listen to Small Town Murder is a pretty, they, they withhold information. I'm not sure if they did it back then on purpose. But it's one of the big things that they do. They withhold information just to see if the suspected person like knows about it so mm. that they're not, you know, a faker when right. it's like somebody who just wants to confess. Right. If I had to guess, uh, 40s, the police officers didn't withhold information for intelligent purposes. I'm guessing they were a bit sauced and then just completely forgot. Yeah, uh, the whiskey hit them a yeah. little hard. They they were probably, in this area of the country, they were probably Irish. So they had <laughs> well, the Jamesons. I was, I was also thinking, like, when you're saying the fire department finally showed up, I was like, I bet they were blasted too. Oh, potentially. Yeah, it was a hot <laughs> day out, so I'm sure they had refreshments. Actually, they, they were talking about the, the water truck that the circus had. Apparently, they didn't park it on the circus grounds. Apparently, it was like many blocks away and they weren't able to get to it before the tent completely burned down. Mm. You know what? When you need something, it's never where it's supposed to be. Yeah. On top of the gasoline and paraffin wax, that was one of the other um, accounts of neglect for mm. the circus. So, so those fires um, that I mentioned, those two were, there were some ropes that had caught fire while the circus was in Portland, Maine. And also a temp flap had started on fire in Providence, Rhode Island. Neither of these fires like got out of control and they didn't cause any damage or there were no victims of the fire. Okay, but but what you're saying is because he had mentioned these fires, but it wasn't public knowledge, it's pretty certain he did those two smaller fires like you mentioned. So there is some controversy around his confession, which I will get to in a little bit, but he admitted to setting those fires. Now, he was with the circus at this time, so it's not unheard of that, you know, I mean, he would have known 
possibly that these fires were set and could have taken credit for it. And that's how he knew about it without it being in the papers. But uh, it is one thing that he did say he can like he did say that he committed these two smaller fires. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now, the investigator also interviewed Robert Seagy's sister, Dorothy Thompson, and she told the investigators that her brother, as a young boy, had actually set two fires inside of their home. So that's kind of one of the things where there's a prior, like, string of, you know, what leads up to an arsonist. He yeah. was setting smaller fires inside the home. Yeah, so. he, he really likes setting fires. Yes. Uh, there was also a part where they were talking about how his father was a real asshole. And one of the punishments was he would hold his son's hand over a flame and kind of like burn his hand as punishment. So they think that might be kind of where it may have started from. Jesus. That, I yeah. mean, that's pretty that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's something that he didn't, he he actually gave like a 1994 interview. This is, he didn't really, well, he claimed to not remember how his father punished him during that interview, but it was during the 1950 interrogations that he claimed his father had done that, so. Gotcha, okay. Now, during his interrogation, Robert Seagy claimed that he had had a vision of an Indian on a flaming horse which had told him to set all these fires and that he had blacked out until he had realized that the match was lit and the fire was set. Sigi also told the detectives that he had met and had unsatisfactory relations with a girl near the Hartford circus grounds before the fire. Uh, he recalled that he returned to the circus grounds just after 2 p.m. The 2 p.m. performance began. Uh, the fire actually started at the tent around 2.20 p.m. There's also a quote from him. I was still nervous and upset. And as far as I know, I thought I laid down and went to sleep. And then there was a strike of a match again. And then the red man came. And that's what Siggy recalled. Okay. That's, uh, that's, from his, that's from the Murderpedia page on Robert Siggy. All of that stuff. Okay, so from what we know, or what I know about some of these guys, the murderers and whatnot, like him saying he had a vision about a native on a flaming horse, I would assume is his way of like compartmentalize him setting the tent on fire and killing all those people. I guess kind of like how they give themselves, telling themselves that it's okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm assuming if we believe his story, he had relations with a girl, and then he probably went into a rage and set the fire. Is that kind of how I'm reading that right? Yes. Well, that's his claim during the 1950 interrogation. I also did read in one of the articles that seeing like a, a flaming man or like something on fire is kind of, among arsonists, kind of common. Uh, having something like tell you to like set something on fire or to start a fire. Ah, interesting. Yeah, which I hadn't actually heard before. I'm not that big into like the true crime stuff, so that was kind of news to me. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't heard that either, but I guess it makes sense. Yeah, not exactly. Sh I I read it in one article, so it wasn't like a science article. So you know who knows who wrote it, but gotcha. it's it's kind of interesting. I'd never heard it before. Gotcha. So I was also going to mention, too, that the investigator actually went 
and kind of like looked back at his school records. Apparently he had failed every single class in the sixth grade. Uh, the school had done an like kind of an examination on his intelligence and found that he had had a, I believe it was a 78 IQ. Okay. Not the, not the smartest fellow then little Forrest Gumpy, but like the evil version. Yeah. So a little like, um, he was mistreated by his family, like I mentioned, and he basically ran away from home to join the circus. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about this later on during his 1994 interview. Um, at a very young age, he got out of his home, joined up with the circus, and left town, uh, got away from them. This was after he would escape his house every single night and go out and set fires. Okay. According that, to according to him during his 1950 interrogation, so I mean, sometimes a lot of these guys like they just are arsonists. I guess it's just like a compulsion; they can't stop themselves from setting fires everywhere. Yeah, almost kind of like them acting up or right. acting out, right? Kind of against everything that's like maybe happening to them. I guess I'm not exactly sure how the you know the whole arsonist like how their brain works or. Like a serial killer, you know, where it all kind of comes from. So Right, right. Now, on top of all of the fires, Siggy also claimed four separate murders during his 1950 interrogation. This would include uh, his first slain, which was a nine-year-old girl. Uh, he claimed to have beaten her to death with a stone during a fit of anger. He identified the victim as Barbara Driscoll, nine, and said that she was killed on a riverbank uh, at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on September 5th, 1938. His other victims were a security guard who had caught Robert Siege setting a fire next to a warehouse. This was in Portland, Maine, on March 16th, 1943. He also claims to have killed a 12-year-old boy. Uh, he strangled him to death at a beach at Cape Cottage, Maine, in 1943. He didn't know exactly when... In 1943, but that was to best of his knowledge in 1943. Okay. He also claims to have killed a Japanese boy. Uh, he killed him in Japan while Robert Sigi was in the army uh, just after World War II. Okay, so isn't it kind of a weird timeline if he he killed? Okay, let's just say he killed these people while he was in, or let's just take the last two, right? He killed these people while he was still in the United States, but then in the same year or year after, he was in Japan and he killed a Japanese boy? Okay, so I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Okay. Okay, so in 1938, he would have been nine years old. Oh, he in would have been. Yeah. In 1943, it would have been a year before the, the, the two murders he committed in 1943 would have been a year before the Hartford Circus fire, he would have been about 13 years old. But the Japanese boy that he killed while in Japan, uh, so Robert Sigi actually spent a year in the army. He joined in August 1948 out of Ohio. Uh, he had moved to Ohio after he had lived in Maine. He claimed during the 1994 interview that he did go to Japan. Okay, I gotcha. Okay, okay, that makes yeah. sense. So... Um, they're catching him for the circus thing quite a while after it had burned down. Oh, yes. Yeah, so six years after. 
Oh, so, okay. Yeah, he had he he spent about a year in the army. I'm guessing he wasn't a very good fit. He said he wasn't a good soldier. So he said from August 1948 to August 1949, he was in the army. After he got out of the army, he went back to Ohio, and that's where he committed the arson that actually got him caught. Though he would get caught at a family member's house in Illinois. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't realize he was that young when he claims to to have killed those people. Yes. Yes. So all of the murders that he committed, except for the young boy in Japan, were all committed before he was like 16 years old. Jesus. Okay. I don't know if you're going to go into it more, but are we are we believing him? I mean, it's I'm going to go into it a little bit right now. Okay. So he was actually convicted of the arson that took place in Circleville, Ohio, which is the arson that got him caught. However, uh, kind of the interrogation methods that they used, a lot of it really kind of one of those situations where they didn't really believe him. He wasn't a reliable confessor because of a lot of the tactics they used with the psychologists. And there was a lot of claims of coercion. Um, He even claims during his 1994 interview that he was just telling them what they wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah, you could see that. Um, 40s, you know, interrogation, 50s even, probably not the greatest. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you got to think too, a lot of this was probably like state police doing a lot of it. Um, A lot of it was coming, you know, out of the Circleville, Ohio uh, police department. That's where even like the investigator who went back and did all the checking up on his previous hometowns, who knows exactly, like, was he connecting dots that maybe he was, you know, weren't really there, uh, that sort of thing too. There was also three other murders that he claimed, though he didn't have any dates for those murders or any names, and they couldn't really figure out who he killed during those three murders before his 1950 arrest. Okay, all right. That that all makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, he also claims that he was brainwashed. So I did mention that he kind of had like a lower intelligence. So listening to him explain it is kind of, it's a little rough. He goes into a lot of conspiracy about kind of what happened to him during the 1950 interrogation, uh, the next eight years that he's in prison. He's eventually kind of let out of prison. He's sentenced to, I believe, 40 years in prison. He's let out after eight, but then he spends three separate stints in a state hospital in Ohio. So Mm, Okay. All right. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, Robert Siege would give a 1993 interview to Connecticut State's police detectives about the Hartford Circus Fire. Uh, He claimed that he was only 13 years old at the time of the fire, though he immediately then after states that his birthday was on September 17th, 1929, which would make him 14 years old in June of 1944. It's not really that important. uh, Well, I I mean, I think that shows... Like, maybe he really is not all there upstairs. Yeah, I mean, it had been a long time. It had been about 50 years since the those events took place. Hey, that's um, true. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where he said he was 13. He actually would have been 14 if his birth date was correct. So, but who knows? I mean, 
records were a little sketchy back then. Who knows if that's his actual birth date? You know, it's one of those situations. Right. He also said that he doesn't believe that any one act or any one person actually started the fire. Uh, Right away, he claims that it was a very hot day in Hartford, and he believed that the sun was what really started the fire. Uh, During the interview, he also insinuated that there was a conspiracy to commit insurance fraud by the bigwigs in the circus. Also, he begins to point out to detectives that there were some sketchy men working for the traveling circus. He also kind of goes out of his way to, you know, talk about some of their races and say that there was some weird things about them. He also claims that he didn't know any of their real names, only nicknames. Only... So he's kind of like dodging around a little bit. Okay, also. I was going to say, this sounds like... So basically he he just <laughs> delivers four different excuses <laughs> for why the tent caught on fire, none of which involve him starting it. Yeah, so right away he talks about it being a hot day out. Um, during So during the, it's a, the, the interview is on YouTube. They have some pictures behind it. They actually showed the weather report from that day in Hartford, Connecticut. It said that at its hottest, at about like 1 to 2 p.m., it was, I think it said 88 degrees. Mm. So in my mind, that's not really that hot, but you also got to remember humidity too. So right. I don't know if 88 degree heat is enough to start gasoline on fire. I, I really don't think so. No, yeah, I don't think so either. That's just what he, right away he claims that. And then throughout the interview, he begins to go into conspiracy theories. Mm. So it's not all right away, but I mean, as the questions start coming, he kind of like starts pointing fingers a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Siggy also claimed that he had joined the circus at such a young age. Like I mentioned before, this was to escape his terrible family, especially his abusive father. Uh, He had joined the circus about four or five days before the June 6th fire. Uh, He had joined in Portland, Maine, and he had traveled with the circus from Portland to Providence, Rhode Island, and then on to Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, He had claimed that he worked on the lighting crew for the circus. And remember, I said that the first small fire was in Portland, Maine. The second one was in Providence, Rhode Island. And then the third large fire was in Hartford, Connecticut. So all three stops, he alleged in 1950 that he had started a fire. Well, I mean, if that is true, then uh, I think it's pretty goddamn obvious that he had probably started the big one. Um, Here, interesting, 13, 14-year-old, they're just like, okay, come join the circus. Yes, I also, there was another person's account um, in a different article where they were talking about A reporter had asked if there was any police or fire presence, and one of the patrons had actually said that there was some police who had come to the circus who were looking for runaways or people wanted by the law. So basically, the authorities came to kind of search through the circus crew to see if there are any delinquents among the ranks. I suppose that makes sense. It's a good place to hide. Yeah, well, I mean, it is kind of funny. It's a, it's kind of an old trope of like TV and movies where I'm going to run away and join the circus. But apparently it was a real thing. Like they would just kind of take these kids in to do stuff, you know, like set up the circus and whatnot, be part of the crew. I mean, the circus kind of encompasses outcasts a bit, right? And uh, yeah. who's a better outcast than runaways? Yeah, and it is kind of a nomadic lifestyle too. Right, right. That's very true. Definitely. 
So during the circus fire, Robert Seagy claimed that he was in town uh, that day, but he claims that he was not at the circus at the time of the fire, that he was actually out watching a movie. The movie was called Four Feathers, and it was at the local theater, and that he didn't even hear about the fire until he was actually getting a ride back to the circus grounds on a city bus. Uh, he stated that once he had heard about the fires, he got right off the bus and tried to help in any way that he could. Though by the time that he had got there, the tent was completely burnt to the ground. And then he, he said this during his 1994 interview, not the 1950 interview. Well, um, he's, he's changed his story about 10 fucking times now. I wouldn't even doubt if Four Feathers is even a real movie, or maybe it is. Yeah, I, I looked it up. So he, he claimed that Four Feathers was a movie about four British soldiers who were fighting Arabs in North Africa. So it's kind of during that whole pro-war movement of like popular media movies at the right, time. Right. There was a lot of like war movies out. So this is actually a real movie. I'm not exactly sure if it was playing in Hartford, Connecticut on that date. Well, maybe you need to watch Four Feathers um, instead of Dune. Maybe you would have had a better movie experience. Give us all a movie review on it. Yeah. (laughs) After the fire, Robert claimed that there wasn't much of a job left for him back with the circus and that he and a bunch of the other child workers had been bused back to Portland, Maine. Uh, He also claimed that he had not been paid for any of the work that he had done in the four or five days that he had been traveling with the circus, which I can understand because they're not going to pay some brand new person who just jumped on the bus any money, you know? No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. After Seagy's days with the circus were over, he went on to move to Ohio in 1947. This is where he claims that he was wrongly arrested for arson in Centerville, Ohio, in 1950, like I mentioned before. Eventually, he was sent to jail in 1950. Uh, He got out in 1958, and like I mentioned before, he spent three stints in Lima State Mental Hospital after that. Okay, do you know, did it stay, or did it say how long he was in the mental hospital, or was that, like, pretty much the rest of his life? I mean, he didn't give any exact dates, I'm guessing that it was kind of spread out. Okay. Um, I know that he, you know, had a much quieter life after he got out of prison in 1958 because he doesn't really, you know, get arrested for much anything else. And um, he kind of he claims that the state mental hospital is where he was kind of really messed up and brainwashed. But this is all part of kind of the conspiracies, too. And when you listen to him talk, it all kind of chops together. You know, he kind of has like this weird kind of like when you listen to a, I don't want to, you know, when you listen to a crazy person talk, they kind of like they're having three conversations at once. Yeah, it's kind of like that. At the same time, he's telling you the story. He's also trying to figure out if the investigators are believing him. And he's also kind of feeling out to see which part of his stories, you know, are going good or not going so good. Like. You know how the investigators, you can imagine how they are asking him like leading questions like, oh, well, you know, if we do ever catch the person who started the fires, what do you think we should do to them? They're kind of asking him those questions. Yeah. And he's kind of at the same time, like trying to feel them out to see what he should say. So it's kind of hard because he goes off in different directions sometimes. Yeah, I I mean, I could pretty much 
pick that up from what you've been telling me because this dude just seems to be <laughs> have an excuse, multiple excuses for everything. Yeah. Like 10 minutes into the interview, he goes into this little rant about how kind of like where the insurance, he didn't say insurance fraud right off the bat, but he said, oh, it's kind of weird how, you know, they had all, all the insurance paid for all of the damages and paid off all the people. And isn't it weird that whatever happened, you know, happened and none of them got in trouble. And then the cops said, oh, actually there was four people who went to jail and they ended up getting charged with negligence and all this stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, that all happened. That all happened. Blah, 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 blah. Like he was agreeing with them, even though he made this insinuation and then just (laughs) completely covered it up with pretending like he knew what they were talking about. That sort of thing. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's guilty. Yeah. I mean, they, honestly, it's one of those things where if you were listening to small town murder and they were, I bring this up a lot cause it's my real, you know, true crime. That's mostly what I listen to now the, you would hear them basically get the sentence overturned or the, you know, conviction overturned because there was such bad interrogation or, you know, they had basically led them to give them a false confession or something like that. I mean, if you heard this on that show, you would think, oh, of course they overturned it. But you would hope that they retried them and looked towards the real evidence. Yeah. So he was never actually convicted of the Hartford, Connecticut fire because they never really had the evidence to show that he was ever there. So he never got convicted of it. Gotcha. So that's why he only did eight years. Yeah, he only did eight years of the 40. Also, I believe it might have had something to do with his mental state mm. is why maybe they got him out. I didn't exactly find why they let him out of prison after only eight years when he was supposed to serve a lot longer than that. So you're probably right. Some sort of uh, he needed to go to the mental hospital or you know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah, from his interview, it sounds like he got out of prison and then spent his first state at Lima State Hospital, like, immediately. Yeah, that's probably so, what happened then. That's what I assumed. I'm, I'm just making assumptions, though, or speculating. But I assume it had something to do with his mental state. So, in the interview, the investigators asked Robert Siege why he would claim responsibility to the multiple arsons and murders that he had confessed to while in custody. He claimed, like I mentioned before, that it was because that's what they wanted to hear. Also, that they wouldn't believe him anyway because he was a Native American. His daughter actually kind of chimes in right away uh, while he's stating this and says that he was half Sioux and half Mohawk. Uh, later on, he claims that his Native American name is Chief Black Raven. She also claimed that her father was a certified shaman and that he received visions and that he sometimes had a hard time telling if the visions were real or not. Uh, This was in an attempt, I kind of think, to explain away her father's visions of the Native American man with the flaming horse just before the Big Top went up in flames. Interesting. I'm surprised his I mean, I guess, but I was like, why is his daughter like sticking up from that hard? But I guess uh, you probably would if you, you know, whatever. Also, is Mohawk a tribe? Am I being idiotic here? I I believe it is. Oh, okay. All right. I I did not know. Well, knowledge is power here. Uh, Yeah, he... I think nation, maybe they might prefer, but yeah, I think it is... uh... Like Sioux Nation and yeah. Gotcha. Okay. It was pretty I dope, honestly. Uh, here's the thing. 
So I I think he might be blaming if his heritage is real. Uh, I think he's blaming that on his hallucinations he might be having if he is not mentally well. Um, but yeah, I I don't. It kind of seems like he's pretty guilty. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, so he actually during the interview pulls out a card that he claims on the back of it. Obviously, it's it's recorded. It's not videotaped. But he claims on the back of it that it it says that he is a certified shaman and that it's basically he's saying it's certified that he has these visions. I mean, it's obviously I don't know about, you know, I didn't realize that you could become like a certified like shaman or someone who is certified as having visions in maybe whatever community that he's in. But it is kind of like a a nice excuse for him to have, I kind of think. Well, here's that the thing. Maybe he has these delusions and he can kind of fall back on his heritage. <laughs> oh, I got a card. That's okay. My delusions, I got a card. I'm just a shaman having a spirit quest right now. Yeah, exactly. The, those kind of things. I don't know. It's the, the thing is, you can be coerced. I mean, once they get you talking, especially someone with, you know, substantially like less intelligence, maybe than the average person. Once you get them talking, you can kind of lead them into claiming like whatever you want them to claim. So it's one of those situations where was he just kind of giving them what they wanted? Was he just going along with what they were saying? Or did he confess these things and then they went and found all this stuff? So that's kind of like where I'm at right now, a little bit with it. I'm honestly, at first I was like, 5%, 5%, maybe he's guilty, 95%. He got screwed over by, you know, shady lawmen back in the day, you know, out in the the wild Western era of police work when the FBI was just brand new and they were starting all this stuff, all the mind games and everything like that. But now that I kind of looked into it, I like saw all the articles on what he actually said during his 1950 interrogation and all of the stuff that kind of like all fit together. It's one of those situations where now I'm like 95% thinking maybe he did it. And 5% of it was maybe either he exaggerated or he was led to say some things that didn't happen. But I definitely think that the the Hartford Circus fire, I think definitely could have been him. Yeah, it. I mean, the thing is, if we believe he did all the fires that he claims he did and how much he enjoyed them, kind of fits with his mo because he seems to really like fire yes yeah so i mean he was with the circus for less than a week the circus made three stops there was a fire at all three stops where he was with the circus one (laughs) of them was a gigantic fire that went out of control yeah yeah it's uh, it's very tragic uh you know almost 200 people died in that thing and i can only imagine Anybody who survived probably has quite a traumatic experience from living through that. So I don't know if this guy thought it was going to go up or is going to cause that big of a fire or if he just wanted to start a fire. I don't I don't really know on that aspect, but I think I I don't know. I'm kind of in the tent that I think he did it, especially because of all the convoluted excuses he now makes or did make. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, 
also during the interview, I kind of noticed I'm, I'm just using like, you know, how you kind of make insinuations. He was talking about the paraffin wax and the gasoline. He did seem like he sounded kind of angry about them using the wax and the gasoline mix, almost like he didn't maybe realize it or expect it. And he was kind of mad because maybe he just wanted to start a small fire and didn't realize it would, you know, go up that go big. up, you know, yeah. completely take the big top down in less than 10 minutes and kill all these people damage. I mean, also too, you got to think all the people who were around the tents, the people from the surrounding area that came in, there is one lady who was talking about hearing the screams of children from inside the tent and not knowing which of those screams was of her child. I mean, this you're talking about some fucking horrifying stories coming out of this. People, yeah. if you were inside the tents and watched people get trampled, watched children being thrown off the bleachers so that they could maybe crawl out of the tent or out of a hole that someone made in the tent, you would, I mean, those are lifelong mental scars. That oh, you, absolutely. Also, you would have probably physical scars from having flaming hot wax dropping on top of you too. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I kind of like that uh, explanation there. Like he wanted to start a little fire and it got really out of control, basically. Like he didn't know that I was going to get that big. I, I, I do like that. Yeah, I don't really, I mean... His first excuse with the, well, I mean, right away, I when he was talking about the 1950s excuse, he talked about being angry with a, I don't know if he had a failed like sexual experience with a girl or if it just wasn't as good as he thought it was or if she turned him down. He didn't really kind of, it didn't really go into it in any of the articles that I read. But when I saw that, I kept thinking about like kind of that, that behavior, like the serial killer kind of. Like the McDonald Triangle thing? Yeah, the, what you just said. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. I just didn't know the name for it. But kind of all of um, kind of all the things that go along with maybe like a serial killer or like serial arsonist, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it definitely fits the profile. Um, but anyway, we've been going uh, quite a long time here, Phil. Let's wrap it up. And let's say if anybody has uh maybe they have a relative who knows about this or maybe they have their own explanation for what happened where can they reach out to us yeah or maybe even if they grew up in the area and yep. have heard stories about it in the past uh, yep. we'd love to hear from you you know we'd love to hear from all of our fans anyone who wants to get a hold of us they can hit us up on our email subliminal podcast at gmail.com uh, it's a great way to get a hold of us Another way to get a hold of us, probably even better, is through our Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, we love all the likes, all the shares, all the comments. You know, keep them coming. Cody and I have our own Instagram accounts. Mine is SDPodPhil. Cody, you got one? Yeah, follow me on Instagram at Cody Subub. Apologies, I haven't been checking that nearly as much as I used to. You can also follow me on TikTok. Send me some funny videos. Uh, at Cody's Above as well. Last thing we need you guys to do is to log on iTunes, leave a show five-star review. doesn't really matter what you say. Put your favorite event at a circus on there. I don't really care. As long as it's five stars or if you're a Spotify user, it's even easier. All you got to do is hit that follow button and it's apparently like a written review on iTunes. So thank you so much to everybody who's taking the time to do that. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us uh, get our numbers up. Uh, happy Halloween, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.